So here now, the word of the Lord, I'll be reading out of the ESV, the English Standard Version. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. The word is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were, were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. This is the word of the Lord. Well, in the uh, Christian classic book uh, that many of you are probably familiar with called The Pilgrim's Progress by John, Bun John Bunyan, um, we read in that book about the pilgrimage of a man named Christian as he journeys from his hometown, the city of destruction, to the place where he longs to be in, the celestial city as it's known. Now, I know many of you have probably read the book before, uh, and so you may know that this book is essentially an allegory of the Christian life. In other words, it uses this long journey of Christian from one city to another to, to represent, to, to symbolize spiritual realities in the Christian life. Um, each scene and each character in the Pilgrim's Progress is, is, meant, to, is meant to represent something in the Christian life. And, and so the character of Christian, for example, is meant to represent, well, the Christian, you and I, in our sojourn from conversion to glory. The pilgrimage that, that Christian undertakes is meant to represent, well, the Christian life. And the character of Pliable, who's one character among many, represents somebody who starts the Christian life well, but at the first sign of discouragement and trouble turns back, kind of like the seed sown on rocky ground in Jesus' parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4. Now, throughout Christian's pilgrimage, um, he faces a number of roadblocks in the pilgrim's progress. 
At one point, he faces the dragon Apollyon, who represents Satan in the Valley of Humiliation. Apollyon stops Christian on the road and nearly kills him before Christian deals a deadly blow to Apollyon, and Apollyon escapes. Later on, Christian has to go through a place called Vanity Fair in the city called Vanity. And here, Christian and his companion Faithful face the danger of, of worldliness. That is what Vanity Fair is meant to represent, where people are buying and selling uh, various lusts and merchandise, some of which aren't inherently bad, but all of which could so easily deceive someone should they make those things ultimate God substitutes in their lives. And in Vanity Fair, Christian and Faithful, well, they stand out amidst the crowd for the way they dress, the way they speak. They, they speak the language of Canaan. And they don't care to browse the merchandise in the marketplace like, like those who are at home in Vanity Fair tend to do. And so throughout Christian's pilgrimage, we observe how he often encounters persuasions or threats that would seek to derail him in his pilgrimage. Some of the threats Christian encounters are, are terrifying, some are more alluring, and yet throughout his pilgrimage, what we find over and over again is that Christian knows where he's going. He knows where he's heading. He has a clear apprehension throughout the entirety of his journey that, that he's going to the celestial city. And as such, we find that his mind, his heart, his hands, and his feet, despite all of the roadblocks that stand in the way, are oriented towards that one singular and glorious goal. Well, in our passage this morning, the author of Hebrews reminds us that amidst all of the various roadblocks that we tend to stumble over in our own pilgrimage, in our own sojourn, that there's a certain direction that our minds and hearts, hands and feet, should be likewise pointed towards. He calls it perfection. And we'll talk about what that means in a moment. But, but whatever it is, our author tells us at the outset that, that this perfection, is the prize that was sought throughout the Old Testament, but it was never quite attained. That perfection was the hope that God's people longed to attain, and yet nothing in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law was perfect. And yet this hope of perfection, that is what the people of God from of old have longed to attain, has finally arrived through the perfect high priest, Jesus Christ. And so our big idea this morning, if you're following along, is that perfection comes only through the perfect high priest. Perfection comes only through the perfect high priest. We have three points and a number of sub-points that we'll be working through uh, to give you a quick roadmap. First, we'll be looking at an imperfect priesthood fades, how an imperfect priesthood fades. Uh, second, we'll see a perfect priesthood arise. And then third, we'll look at how this perfect priest the one who the Old Testament Mosaic law pointed towards Jesus Christ, our Lord, ultimately saves. So let's start out with the first point. First, an imperfect priesthood fades. Now, to give you a bird's eye view of our passage, uh, bear in mind what our author has been doing thus far. Right? He's, he's in the process of establishing throughout Hebrews, and specifically in this section, the superiority of Christ's priesthood. That is why Jesus Christ is a priest who's better than all of the other priests who came before in Israel's history. Those who were known as the Levitical priests who descended from the first priest named Aaron. 
Remember, a priest, we've talked about this a number of times now, a priest is somebody who represents God's people before God. And our author argues throughout Hebrews, in this section we're looking at, and in our passage this morning, that Jesus Christ, our Lord, is a better representative than any of the other priestly representatives who've gone before. And when our passage opens, he begins his argument by emphasizing, first and foremost, that the whole Levitical priestly system that came before Jesus was, in, was imperfect. And it was in desperate need of something, and specifically someone, better. Again, we read in the opening line of our passage, Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood. And the implication there is that perfection wasn't attainable through the Levitical priesthood. But before we ask why the Levitical priesthood was imperfect, why the Levitical priesthood was inadequate, inadequate, we first have to back up for a moment and ask, what in the world does our author mean by perfection in this passage? And this word that's translated perfection in the ESV, it's really important in this passage. It shows up uh, at least three times in a number of different forms in our passage. And our author understands perfection to be the goal that the priests of old sought for those they represented. So what in the world is this important word translated perfection in our passage? Well, often in the Bible, this word is used to mean something like completion or fulfillment. It speaks to reaching a certain goal or achieving a certain end. And in the case of our passage, it refers specifically to achieving the goal of being in the presence of God. The goal of being in the presence of God. In other words, it gets at the idea of, of access to God. One commentator puts it like this. He writes, perfection points to the establishment of right relationship with God through the cleansing of the conscience and the consummation of this relationship in everlasting glory, rest, and celebration in God's heavenly city. Perfection, in other words, is about attaining the purpose for which we were created. That is, an eternal, unencumbered fellowship with Almighty Triune God. But the problem is that this goal of perfection was unattainable under the Levitical priesthood. Now, it wasn't that the Levitical priesthood, priesthood was bad. After all, God himself ordained the Levitical priestly system. Rather, the problem was that God's people and, and God's priests, that's where the problem laid in the Old Testament. Perfection was unattainable because they were unworthy, unfitting to be in God's presence as they were, and the whole system reinforced this. After all, the only person in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law who could draw near to God in the place where God's glory was most powerfully displayed on earth was the high priest, just one guy. And he could only do it once a year. And before he did it, he had to offer sacrifices for his own sin. And then when he went into the presence of God, he couldn't bring anybody else with him. And then even his access to the most holy place was shrouded in smoke. So in summary, perfection, access to God, unencumbered fellowship with the triune God was unattainable through the Levitical priesthood because of the people at the heart of the system, the Levitical priests. So if God's people could ever hope to attain the perfection for which they were created, they would need a different kind of priest, one who, who represented a different kind of priesthood. And that's our author's point 
in verse 11. Something better, someone better is needed. But we also find in these first two verses another problem too, a more fundamental problem. It's not only that the Levitical priesthood couldn't bring about God's people into God's presence. After all, the people are sinful, the Levitical priesthood are sinful, and the sacrifice they offer are insufficient. But we also hear that the law which regulated the priesthood was also imperfect. Notice in verses 11 through 12 that that the law we read is wrapped up in the priesthood. It was under the law that the people, or under the priesthood rather, that the people of God received the law. Verse 11 tells us that. And then in verse 12, we hear that, that a change in the priesthood necessitates a change in the law. So this begs the question, first and foremost, what is the law when we read this reference? What's the law? Well, typically when we come across references to the law in the scriptures, they're referring back to what we've talked about as the law of of Moses, to the law that, that Moses received on Mount Sinai all the way back in the book of Exodus. In that law, the the Mosaic law, God's people were given all kinds of instructions about how to approach God in worship, about what sort of sacrifices to offer, about how to maintain ceremonial cleanliness before God, all kinds of laws. This whole system is sometimes, again, referred to as the Mosaic Covenant. And in the Mosaic Covenant, God's people were given some promises, but they were also given laws that at their core were meant to expose God's people in their sin. I've heard um, Ligon Duncan describe the Mosaic Covenant before as a, quote, multi-generational lesson in the doctrine of sin, and I think he's right. In other words, all the various ceremonial laws that the priesthood was was required to maintain and follow, uh, these laws that we sometimes have a hard time understanding when we read the Bible and scratch our heads and wonder what in the world are these getting at, well, they were all, in summary, designed to accent the need for holiness, And the priesthood, when they acted in accordance with the law, they did the same. But here's the issue. Just as the Levitical priests couldn't bring about perfection, not because of the system, system, but because of the operators, so too the law, of which the priesthood was only one component, was also unable to bring about perfection. The law sure did show people their sins. It exposed to them their unholiness, but it didn't have any power to deal with sin so that the people of God could truly attain the perfection that they longed to attain. It couldn't open up unencumbered access to God, nor could it lead them to the celestial city. As F.F. Bruce writes, its very design was to keep men and women at a distance from God. Recently, I went through um, the process at home of refinishing my deck. Um, I'm not a handyman at all, so this was probably one of the biggest projects of that sort that I've ever tackled. Happy to report it was successful. Uh, Nevertheless, when I began the the process of refinishing my deck uh, with the goal of I needed to apply new stain and new sealer to the deck, I I learned that uh, you couldn't just buy the cans of stain and sealer and then just um, apply them to your deck. There were a number of steps you, you had to take beforehand to prepare the deck. Um, First and obviously, you have to clear the deck of all furniture, right? You don't want to paint on the furniture, so you have to get all the furniture off. Then you have to clear the deck of any loose material, um, sweep off the deck, make sure there's no uh, dirt or debris on it. Then you have to scrub the deck. You have to get this all-in-one wood cleaner and spray the deck down and then scrub it and, you know, really work it in. Then you have to rinse the deck off and you have to get all that cleaner and all the grime and dirt off of it. 
And then if there are any repairs to the deck, say there are rotten boards, you have to replace those, or nails that are loose, you have to secure those. And only after all of those steps are completed are you then ready to slap on a new coat of stain and sealer. But if at any point you skip one of those steps, if you didn't say clean off the wood or strip any paint off the wood, well, the stain and sealer job would have failed. It would have looked awful at best, and, the, and at worst, the sealer would have been completely ineffective. In summary, a successful deck refinishing project required that I engaged in an overhaul of sorts. Well, a similar thing could be said for how we attain perfection as well. You see, our author is telling us that it wouldn't be enough should a better Levitical priest arise. It's not a matter, and it wasn't a matter, of just getting a younger, more ambitious priest to offer sacrifices on the altar and temple, and then all would be well. And it's not a matter of trying really hard to obey the law. All of those approaches would have been like slapping on a, a, a new coat of stain onto rotten boards when the deck has to be stripped down to its unvarnished wooden base, or better yet, taken down to its studs. And this is what our author is telling us about the priesthood and the Mosaic law. Now, of course, he's not telling us that the law is bad. He's not telling us that the Levitical priesthood had no value. After all, Paul, the Apostle Paul tells us that the law was good, and it served a very important purpose in its own day. But it's also true that it didn't require just a little bit of reform or a little bit of touch-up work. Instead, the Mosaic law needed a kind of overhaul to be brought to its fulfillment. And maybe that describes some of you this morning, too. Maybe you're visiting with us this morning, or maybe you're even a member of Harvest, but the only reason you're here is because you're looking for a few good moral principles to kind of supplement your life and to guide you and to motivate you as you live your life really how you want to live your life. And that's about it. Or maybe you're here because you're trying to make up for something that you've done in the past, some grievous sin, and you think that God seeing you in church for a time will be enough to, to get God on your side. Or maybe you're here because you think now's the time to give your kids a good moral compass so that they don't fall into any notorious and shameful sins in their lives, but that's, that's about it. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, friends, begins with the bad news that we are all rotten to our core. We are dead in our sins. We are unable to do anything about our sin in our human nature. And we have no case that we could bring before God on our own to make God love us. We don't simply need to supplement our lives with good moral principles and get along doing what we want to do. No, we need an overhaul. We need new hearts. We need a new reorientation towards the goal for which we were created and hearts that beat for that goal, access to God and fellowship with God for all eternity. And the good news of the gospel is that when we put our faith in Jesus Christ, the, the categorically better priest of a categorically better priesthood who brings a categorically better covenant, well, we're forgiven of our sins. We're given a new nature so that we can attain perfection. That is, so that we can have unencumbered access to God. The Mosaic Covenant couldn't do it. The Levitical priesthood couldn't do it. And you and I will never be moral enough to attain the perfection that is the hope and goal of the Christian life. We need a new priesthood who will lead us the way for us 
And this leads to our second point. When we hear that this very need is met by a priest who arises after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. So second point, a, 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 a perfect priesthood arises. Now, the, the, the first point our author makes here you know, for our second point in verses 13 through 14 emphasizes for us the utter uniqueness of Jesus Christ. And isn't that important for us to hear? After all, if the Levitical priesthood couldn't do it, if the law of Moses couldn't do it, well, we need a categorically better priest. And we come to find right at the outset that this Jesus Christ is utterly unique, categorically unique priest. Again, in verses 13 through 14, we read, For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. Now, you may recall that when we studied um, the first 10 verses of Hebrews about two weeks ago now, uh, we talked about how priests were always descended from the tribe of Levi, and specifically Aaron, who was the, the first priest of the tribe of Levi. Uh, that was the baseline criteria, in fact, to be a priest. But kings in Israel were descended from the tribe of Judah. Again, there were 12 tribes in Israel. Tribe of Levi, well, that was the, the tribe of the priests. Tribe of Judah, that was the tribe of a king. And so if you were a king, that meant that you descended from Judah, and therefore you couldn't be a priest. And if you were a priest, that meant you were descended from Levi, not Judah, and therefore you couldn't be a king. In other words, priests and kings, they didn't mix. They weren't allowed to mix under the law of Moses. And yet our author also told us that historically, and this was back in uh, verses 1 through 10 of chapter 7, that before Levi and Judah ever came on the scene, while their great-grandfather Abraham was off doing his thing, that he met somebody, he met a guy, who actually was a priest and a king. He wasn't a Levitical priest, though. He was a different kind of priest, a better kind of priest. And this is the priest-king that Jesus Christ is too. He's not a Levitical priest. Remember, that was an ineffective priesthood designed to reveal sin, but, but was utterly incapable of doing anything about it. Instead, we read that Jesus is a priest after the order of Melchizedek, a priest and a king, an utterly different kind of priest. And in a nutshell, this is what our author is telling us in verses 13 through 14. First, he reminds us that Jesus' priesthood is wrapped up in royalty. He's a royal priest. He's a priest who we read is descended from the line of Judah, the line of kings. And yet even here, our author hints at the fact that this Jesus is no ordinary kind of king. Now, if you're looking at your Bibles, again, I'm looking at the ESV here, we read in verse 13 that our Lord was descended from Judah, right? You see that word descended. Now, that's an obvious historical fact. We read that elsewhere in the Bible, but there's actually a whole lot of significance wrapped up in that word descended, because the Greek word here literally means arise or spring up. Another way that could be translated is our Lord Jesus sprang up from Judah. And in the Old Testament, this same verb is used in important prophecies to talk about the Messiah. In Numbers 24, 17, for example, we read the, the promise that a star shall come out or arise out of Jacob. It's the same word, same verb that's translated here. 
And some commentators make the point, rightly, I think, that this is an intentional word choice in order to key us into the fact that, that this is no ordinary kind of priest king. This is a king who's not merely descended from the line of Judah. Friends, this is the Messiah. This is a messianic king and a messianic priest. And yet, as unique as this new kind of priest is, we also read as we continue in our passage that Jesus's kingly priesthood was foretold from long ago. You may notice that dropped into the middle of our passage in verse 17 it is a quote from something else. You know, we've read a number of times now in Hebrews uh, of these Old Testament citations in the New Testament. Typically, when you find in your uh, version of the Bible um, a, a few phrases or words or, or sentences that are kind of indented a little bit, that generally signals us to the fact that our author is citing something out of the Old Testament to make a point about Jesus Christ, about how Jesus fulfills something out of the Old Testament. And that's what we find here in verse 17, where we read, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, our author is citing here, uh, again, something out of the Old Testament, and specifically, he's citing from a psalm, Psalm 110, verse 4, in order to tell us something about Jesus. Now, understand that Psalm 110 is what we call a messianic psalm. Uh, that is, it tells us about the future Messiah who would one day arise and make all things right. And in the case of Psalm 110, this is a psalm that was written in its own day by the greatest king of Israel, King David, who wrote many of the psalms of the Old Testament. David here in Psalm 110, he's reflecting upon the one who would one day rule over the nations, the one who would one day follow as his descendant. And in the course of telling us about the Messiah and all that he would do in his reign, he tells us that he would also be a priest in the order of of Melchizedek, that mysterious figure that we met all the way back in Genesis 14. Now, in the years that followed after King David, after King David penned this Psalm 110, verse 4, uh, the people of God waited. They waited for centuries, wondering how in the world would all of this happen? How in the world would a priest king like this ever arise? In fact, it was so curious how a, a priest and a king like this could ever be mixed into one person that during the so-called intertestamental period of time, some branches of Judaism actually began to expect two messiahs. They expected a, a, a messiah from Judah and a messiah from Levi. But when Jesus Christ comes on the scene in the Gospels and his disciples begin to wrestle with just the kind of priest king that he is, well, they begin to realize what the author of Hebrews proclaims, that Jesus is the one who was foretold, that Jesus is the one who would be both a priest and a king. And in that, we also learn something important about God. His promises never end up void. Now, I'm sure you can imagine living under the Mosaic law in the Old Testament, where it was such an ingrained principle that kings and priests don't mix. It must have been perplexing to some reading David's psalm in Psalm 110 verse 4 and considering some of these things that were said about the Messiah, how he would be both a king and a priest and scratching your head wondering, first of all, whether this was even possible or even worse, whether God in his word was mistaken. You go through all the years waiting for this to transpire and it doesn't transpire the way that you expect it to. And yet when Jesus Christ comes on the scene, we learn that he is the priest king who was longed for from of old. And in that, 
that all of God's promises can be trusted. Despite how maybe obscure or confusing they seem to us even today in our own situation, this points us to the fact that when we read something that's promised in God's word, that God can be trusted to keep his word. When we are walking in our own pilgrimages in this fallen and broken world, and we read such promises that seem so far-fetched, and we wonder, how is this going to work out? No, brothers and sisters, that this is probably what the saints of old thought when they read these promises about a priest and a king rising after the Oriel Melchizedek. And yet in this, we're reminded that as far-fetched as those promises seem, God's promises, every single one of them, is a yes and amen in Jesus Christ our Lord. And one of the ways this promise ends up being confirmed, this specific promise ends up being confirmed, well, is in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Notice in verse 16, we read that Jesus became a priest, not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent. Remember, we said this again and again, that he didn't descend from Levi and Aaron, he descended from Judah. But he's still a priest on the basis of an indestructible life. Understand that when Jesus came on the scene to be our exalted king and our great high priest, he first became the Passover lamb. He first accomplished everything that the ceremonial law of Moses required by being perfectly holy in his person. Then he offered up a better sacrifice, a sacrifice better than bulls and goats for us and our salvation. And then dying after dying for our sins, he was raised on high for our justification. And he sits at the right hand of God most high as our forever and our eternal priestly king who lives to make intercession for you and me. Understand that the Levitical priest, uh, unlike the Levitical priest, death could not hold Jesus Christ. Unlike the Levitical priest, his was not a ministry of death. Unlike the Levitical priest, his sacrifice was a sacrifice that actually does something for you and me, for all who put their faith in Jesus Christ. And unlike the Levitical priest, his sacrifice gives us access to the perfect, gives us access to the almighty triune God. And as a consequence of Jesus's high priestly ministry, well, a new covenant follows. Understand that when Jesus became this new kind of priest for us and for our salvation, that had ripple effects. Remember, the Levitical priest, uh, the priesthood and the Mosaic covenant, the law, were so wrapped up in each other that they stood or fell together. And so when Jesus became a better priest, when he inaugurated a new priesthood, he also inaugurated a new covenant too. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we read promises that one day a new covenant would come. We read these promises in passages like Jeremiah 31, passages like Ezekiel 37. It would be a covenant in which the law of God wouldn't be external, but it would be written on our hearts. It would be a covenant in which we experience the full effect of God's forgiveness of sin to a degree that the Old Testament saints just didn't. It would be a covenant in which we could draw near, not just into a type of God's throne room on earth, but we could spiritually ascend, as it were, into God's heavenly temple, which we do every time we draw near as a body and worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. Our author, he's going to have a lot to tell us about this new covenant in chapter 8 of Hebrews, so stay tuned. But for right now, we learn that 
Christ Jesus became our high priest in the course of history, and in the rest of our passage, our author gives us three implications for today of Christ's high priesthood. In verses 20 through this leads to our third point, if you're following along, a perfect priest who saves, who saves right now, who saves in the present, whose work, although it happened in the past, is not confined to the past because he reigns now forever living to make intercession for us. And the final part of this passage, three implications of Christ's work on earth follow. The first is that his priesthood is secure. In verses 20 through 21, our author, he returns to this idea of an oath. And if you've been with us in in Hebrews, as we've slowly been working through the book of Hebrews, we've heard this reference to an oath before. Back in Hebrews chapter 6, when we learned that when God made a promise to Abraham, all the way back in Genesis 22, he backed up his promise to Abraham with an oath. Uh, An oath, if you don't know what that is, is a way for us to give um, gravitas or weight so that our word can be trusted as true. So for example, when we take marriage vows, we take an oath or a vow to the other person that we're marrying. Um, R.C. Sproul, I think I said it at the time, said the reason we have oaths is because humans are liars, we're liars. And so we need oaths to back up our word on really important things. And in the case of God, you know, his word can be trusted, his word is enough, but because of our weakness, he often gives us an oath in order to confirm that his promise is true. And we learn in this passage, just as we learned with Abraham, that the Lord also spoke of Jesus's priesthood with an oath as well. At the end of verse 21, we read that our author again quotes from Psalm 110.4, where we read, the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. Understand that in this passage, we are given the privilege of overhearing a divine conversation of sorts. This is a conversation that the father speaks a word to his son. And in the process, the father swears an oath to the son that he will be a priest forever. And in overhearing this divine conversation of sorts lies a very practical assurance for you and me too. Now, let me highlight this by way of illustration. Um, often, uh, my dear, dear daughter uh, likes to be involved in the decision-making process in our family. Um, and so very often when she requests something or she hears Lori and I um, talking about something that concerns the family or something that concerns her, uh, I get the sense that she drops everything she's doing. She sometimes sneaks around the corner to really listen in to what we're discussing. She wants to drop in on our conversation because it's not good enough for us to simply report back what we've decided, nor does she want us to give us, nor does she ever want to give us time so we can package our communication in a way that she fears we might leave something out. And so she always listens to what we're discussing. And I get the impression that she does that because there's something about, there's something assuring about hearing the adults in the room conferring and confirming with each other rather than simply reporting back to her at a later time. Now, of course, this is an imperfect illustration, but but in the same way, assurance for my daughter is wrapped up in direct access to the conversations that Lori and I have, so too is our assurance strengthened, or at least it should be strengthened, by this insider perspective we get into Christ's priesthood. Again, 
God's word can be trusted, infallibly trusted, apart from this insider perspective. His word is infallibly trustworthy, even apart from an oath. But because we have our doubts, because we love to be privy to insider information, just like my dear daughter does, well, the Lord in this case gives us a window into the divine oath to assure us that our salvation in Jesus Christ is secured because Christ's priesthood has been secured by oath from God. Second, and closely related, we also hear that Christ's priesthood is permanent. In summary, there will never be a time when Christ's priesthood will end. And in making this argument, our author contrasts the permanence of Christ's priesthood with that of the Levitical priest who died one after another and after another. And from this, he concludes that Christ is able to save to the uttermost because Christ lives always to make intercession for us. He always lives. His priesthood never ends, and his priesthood never changes either. Now, for several years, I've been a uh, casual student of military history, um, always on the hunt for a good book or a good documentary on anything that has to do with military history. And so if you have something, let me know. Look to read it or watch it. Uh, well, one thing that I have observed in my uh, limited studies over the year is that the quality of leader that you have on the battlefield can be a matter of life and death. You know, one day you could have a courageous, charismatic, and brilliant tactician who, who always meets every objective with as few as casualties as possible, but the same men in the same units with the same resources can face absolute disaster if the leadership changes and another leader takes command who's the antithesis of those qualities. Disaster can so easily befall a unit if the wrong leader takes command. And therefore, there's, something, there, there's sometimes a kind of apprehension that follows a change in leadership. You know, that's true from military history, but I think that's probably also true in our own vocations too. If you have a boss or a supervisor, a change in that can often bring some apprehension with it. Is this guy or gal going to be as good as the other one? Is this person going to have the same qualities that we might, look, might have looked up to in the previous one? Or is this one going to be deficient in a way that would lead to our, um, to our fruitlessness in our vocations? Well, when we consider the history of our author's original readers, this was also a fear before them. Um, commentators note that from Aaron all the way down to the destruction of the temple in AD 70, that there were at least 83 high priests. And not all those high priests were of the same quality. Some were better than others, and at each turn, one could imagine uh, the apprehension that would follow when another one took over. Would this really be? the high priest who would really be concerned with God's word, or would this be a high priest with ulterior motives? At each turn, this was a concern that faced the people of God. A change of leadership carries such apprehension and uncertainty, and yet the permanence of Jesus's priesthood communicates that we have nothing to fear at any time or at any place. He is the same today, yesterday, and forever, and holds his priesthood interceding for us in the heavenly places, praying for us without fail, permanently. And then third, we learn that we can trust Christ's priesthood because his priesthood, well, is very simply perfect. Brothers and sisters, I promise you that at every stage of your life, 
you will encounter people who will let you down. You may find the most charismatic, upright, and wise role model, but it's only a matter of time until their foibles will break through the facade that either they have constructed or you've constructed on their behalf. Even the best leaders will at one point or another let you down. Now, that doesn't mean that we need to be completely cynical or skeptical towards all those who would lead or shepherd us, but it does mean that no one outside of Jesus Christ is able to bear the full weight of your needs and of your weaknesses. As our author closes, he reminds us that this Jesus, whose reign is both secure and permanent, well, he's also one whose priesthood is perfect, because he himself is perfect. He's holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners. He has no need to deal with his own sin before he deals with our sin because he is sinless. Brothers and sisters, we have no right, no right in the world to enter into communion with God, that the perfect on our own. We have no business entering into the presence of a holy God, but the one who's perfect, well, he does. And the good news of the gospel is that in this high priest and only in this high priest, do we get to follow in his train and enter into the perfection for which we were created as well? As we prepare to close, I want to leave us with one takeaway, one application. And that is evaluate the ultimate goal that you are aiming towards. Evaluate the ultimate goal you're aiming towards. The assumption throughout our passage is that the perfect, this unencumbered access with God and fellowship with God, is the ultimate goal that lies at the heart of humanity. That's what we were created for, and that's what we attain only through the perfect work of the perfect priest, Jesus Christ our Lord. We have the privilege of drawing near to God in our corporate worship and in our prayer lives. We have the hope of one day attaining consummate perfection in the new heavens and the new earth. And this is the goal that lies at the heart of the Bible. It's what the saints at every epoch of history have longed to attain. But is this the ultimate goal that tugs at your heart too? Or is there another goal or another love that holds your affections hostage? In Christian's journey in the Pilgrim's Progress, he meets several people who appear to be on pilgrimage, but whose hearts are exposed when certain temptations and fears stand in the way. Understand that if that's you, if there's another love right now that's principally captured your heart, it'll only be a matter of time, if it hasn't happened already, when that love will stand in conflict with Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ doesn't allow competing loves. His kingdom doesn't allow for competing allegiances. In fact, every other love or goal must, must pale in comparison to him. And so whatever goal has gripped your mind and heart, your hands and your head, whether that be financial or career success, more influence in your station of like, life, um, an acre of land and 2.5 children or something else, Know that perfection is found only in union and communion with Christ. And it's that perfection that steers every action we take, molds every affection we have, and adjusts every thought that crosses our mind. And so, brothers and sisters, let me exhort you to aim towards that perfection, the perfection of perfect fellowship, 
and know that access has already been opened up through the perfect priestly ministry of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look to him as your hope. Pray with me. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you, in Jesus Christ, have held out for us the promise of access, that we can come, as the author of Hebrews tells us earlier, boldly before the throne of grace with, with confidence. Lord, that's something that we read today that, 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 was, uh, that the saints of old didn't have to the degree that we have today. And yet so often, Lord, our hearts and minds are distracted by other loves and other allegiances. Lord, would you expose them to us as we read your word, as we encounter your law? Would you expose to us our sin, our idolatry, our, 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 our disordered loves, and help us by your spirit to rearrange our priorities and our loves according to the word of God so that we would long for the perfection held out for us and that we would seek that above everyone and everything else. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.